my drive isn't to prove them wrong. It's to prove myself that I'm right. The time and sweat my co-founders and I put in, we, we are right. I can see it. You understand what it means to face adversity and you need to be able to push yourself a little bit further when someone tells you you're not good enough, you're not strong enough. I know the things that are, that are my superpowers that I'm the best at. How do I make sure I'm focusing myself around those? Because that's like what gets me the best outcomes. Like I know where I can move the needle or what, what I'm very unique and capable of doing and making sure I get to do that. It's just like figuring out what you're good at and what role suits you for that. Chaz Flexman is the co-founder and CEO of Starday Foods, where he's building the next great food and beverage conglomerate using a customer-focused, data-centric approach. Previously, Chaz was on the founding team at Pattern Brands and a partner at Andreessen Horowitz and SF. In this episode, we cover why Chaz believes in coaching and therapy, shifting consumer habits for healthy food options, and Starday Foods' inherent data model advantages for massive scale. Welcome back to episode 13 of the Turning Pro Podcast. Today, we have Chaz Flexman from Starday Foods joining us. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. We are super jazzed to have you on. I've known Chaz for three, four. Something like that. It's been a while. Um, the first thing, we have a lot to cover. The first thing that I want to talk about is ever since I've known you, you're probably the most intentional person about where you spend your time. Like a lot of people will say, I'm really happy here. And then I'm like, why don't you go there? And they're like, oh, I got too much shit to do. Right. When you notice that you want to be somewhere or you want to be doing something, you We'll do it within like a month and you'll just make it work and actively change your life. So tell me more about that. We can start with, I guess, location, because I know you split time between New York and Arizona. Yeah. I mean, look, I think a lot of it is having learned the opposite of what doesn't make me happy or what burns me out. Um, I'm a big exec coaching and therapy person. My exec coach has changed my life uh, and really made me a lot more cognizant of the things that, you know, give me energy versus take energy. Um, And that's location, that's routine. Uh, so yeah, I spend, you know, uh, half the year in Arizona and half the year in New York, um, which, you know, is the right sort of balance for me from what I need from a, you know, getting the life of New York, but also having kind of the balance of Arizona where it's quieter, easier kind of like get back into my routines when I get out of sync and things like that. What are you, tell me more about like what you're getting from each place. We were talking about this before when we were walking around, but what does New York give you that Arizona doesn't? And then at the same time, like if you were in New York hundred percent of the time, I don't know about you, I'd go fucking crazy because it's just like too much, but I still need it. Yeah. I mean, like I'm an extreme extrovert, right? Like I need to be around humans. I need the spontaneity of New York. Like I ran into three different friends, either walking to or walking from home from work yesterday. And it's that sort of like serendipity that you get in the city where you walk out the door, you're like, let's roll the dice and see what happens. Or someone's coming to town and telling you're having a breakfast that morning. Uh, Like that's kind of sort of stimulation I need from New York. And then being around people that are, you know, everyone's in New York for a reason, right? Like this isn't an easy, isn't an easy place to live. Uh, people are here with intention. Uh, and so it's fun to be around those people who are so well-rounded, you know, um, you know, Arizona is wonderful. It's, uh, you know, a great place to raise a family. I grew up there. Uh, it's very easy to kind of like, you know, slow things down. Uh, but you don't get the same spontaneity, right? Like you make plans two weeks out, something's a 25 minute drive. And so when New York gets nuts, it's nice to go there to like have them to kind of slow down, you know, when I need to go grind at work and just have no distractions and kind of my blinders on, you know, it's perfect for that too. Um, but you know, there's no beating New York, right. And just the people that you interact with here that you get access to, uh, it's second to none. I want to circle back on a comment you just made because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, but you alluded to executive coaching and therapy. How do you, how did you source the people that you work with or how did you think about that process? Cause to be honest with you, it's something that I've been thinking about for like a year, but I can't fathom the thought of like going on Google to like find a therapist or an executive coach. And it's basically whatever company like sales funnel do the most or spent the most on ads is like the person that's going to be there to like, yeah, talk to you. So, uh, I'm really lucky in that one of the investors in my, uh, original round, uh, part of what they offer is they pay for your first year of exec coaching, uh, which is amazing. I've never, I've never yeah. heard that before. Is that a common thing? Uh, they're trying to change it. I'm actually speaking at a conference in Napa next week about this very topic to like encourage more VCs to, you know, spend some of their dollars to actually uh, pay for this. Um, but they partner with a company called Palea, which is an exact coaching service. Uh, but they do like a really extensive matching program. So like, you know, what a good exact coach for me isn't necessarily a good exact coach for you. Uh, they do this whole onboarding to understand more of kind of what you want, what you're looking for, and then have you like interview and screen like five or 10 exact coaches to figure out who's the right fit. Uh, and so it's great. You know, I've probably got 20 other founders that have like now working with them uh, because it's just, it's, uh, I definitely wouldn't be the CEO or the human that I am without them. What about on the therapy side of it? Uh, I found it through them as well. Um, Do they, or, off, they offer they offer yeah both. they offer both. Um, so 
Uh, and I'm lucky my exec coach, uh, I wanted someone, you know, you've seen Wendy Rhodes and Billions. Like she can do the personal and the professional. And so it was important for me to find an exec coach, especially that like how I am showing me up as a human at work is how I'm going to operate as a CEO and, and running a company. And so someone that could really kind of work on both sides with me because those are inherently interconnected. If you had to, if you had to just distill like the top two or three changes of how you interact, it could be your team, it could be how you work, it could be just yourself personally, what would those be? So one of the things that we did that was most impactful was um, I'm uh to do too many analogies here but you've seen game of thrones like the man of many faces but i think you put on a different face Jack and on, yeah yeah exactly um Snipe. i can kind of be that person i can sit down with engineering i can like be a sales guy uh you know i can kind of run that full spectrum and sometimes that means like i forget which face is mine right and so we did this uh, exercise where i had uh a dozen people from different walks of my life like from personal to parents to uh high school and college friends like the full um whole nine yards and they said like great uh, describe Chaz in 10 adjectives. And then when you walk into a room, how does that room change? Uh, and then they compile that all together and you start to see like the overlaps of how the people in your life see you and like the ways that you show up. And so I probably go back to that once a month when I'm starting to feel like a little out of sync of like, oh, that's who I am. That's the human that I want to be. This is how I'm showing up uh, and making sure that I'm kind of centered on it. Um, on the work side, so I've, my two co-founders go to exact coaches as well. We Something we invest in as a company. Uh, it's definitely helped with like communication styles or like your... When you're running into a tricky situation, like working through coach, like, all right, how do I, how do I talk through this? How do I approach it? What's the best way to like get to that right outcome? Uh, and then even just having an outlet where, you know, sometimes as a CEO, it's like a really lonely job. Um, you know, my co-founders are wonderful and I couldn't build this thing without them. Um, but there's still, you know, times where it's just, you know, on me. And so having like an outlet to kind of talk through that about, like I've cried on the, on the calls with my exec coaches a dozen times right and when you're going through kind of the ups and the downs of it all so um it's great to just you know i always say like entrepreneurship is a um it's a bunch of highs and lows in a very short amount of time like it's just this like constant like up and down and so having someone to like help like i'm a pretty banded emotionally person like i don't get too high or too low uh, but even then like i still need someone that's helping me to like manage both of those sides when i'm you know at my wit's end like you know when i'm like at my highest be like all right let's to get back to focusing on things that you can continue to improve on. But I think the vulnerability is so important because if you're not vulnerable, you're not actually getting anything out of it. Like I spoke, yeah. I spoke to someone um, last week, Jacob's company, which we don't talk about. Yeah. I, don't even, I don't even think it's public yet, but I spoke to a doctor and he was asking me like, what are the things you're looking to improve in your life? And I was so vulnerable with him about like the mental health side of things because uh, I just raised my first round of funding for my company a few months ago. And one of my, mentors asked me, he's like, okay, so you're looking after a team. You're looking after investors. Like who's looking after Ben. And that was the first time where I was like, shit, no one, I guess is the answer, yeah. which is what prompted it. And so when I spoke to someone kind of just laid it all out on the table, he's like, wow, I really appreciate you just being so open with me. And I was like, no one's winning if I'm not going to be vulnerable with you. Cause especially you're busy. You're a CEO. If you're going to take time out of your day to commit to like an executive coach, if you're not just going to spill it all out there to actually make the improvements, what's the point? I think that if I had to guess, one of the reasons a lot of people don't do it is because they're scared to actually be honest about who they are themselves and like what's the thing that they're struggling with. Yeah. I think the beauty of exec coaching too is like now with the relationship we have, she knows how to tease something out of me. Like sometimes I've sit down, I'm like, I don't know if I've got anything to talk about. She's like, cool, let's just talk. And like we'll slowly like pull the threads yep. to get to me to like, oh, there actually is something underneath here that like I had like pushed down and stored away that I didn't even realize. Uh, that like, you know, is probably manifesting itself in some unhealthy manner uh and so it's just like it's great once you have that relationship to like really do the work and like have them you know pull that out of you because they know you so well how this is a personal question because i don't know the answer how do you how do you let yourself talk openly about things without knowing that there's going to be a clear task or action item attached to it like i talk to my coach about this sometimes where i don't have anything to talk about he brings stuff out and then sometimes at the end of every thread i'm like all right how are we going to action this and he was like, we don't need to action everything. That's yeah. sort of, that, that's a problem of being just like a CEO that all you, like execution is your life. That's, that's why you raise capital. And that's why you're great at what you do. But yeah, tell me about what so, you learned. You know, this is, you know, this, like, this is my third company that I've ever run or, you know, helped to found. Um, first time being a CEO, but uh, I've learned a lot of like, I'm okay without the action. I'm okay knowing that there's like two or three things I have to get right today. And like, that's it. And if I don't do anything else but those two or three things, like, the days, you know, the days of win. Uh, and so I've gotten pretty comfortable and like, again, you obviously know me, but 
I'm super talkative, extroverted. Like I'm fine putting it all out there. I'm fine if it's just like a conversation where like I'm learning something about. Uh, and it's more, my coach would say like, um, I take stuff, process it really quickly and then like build it into my like mental framework. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be an action, but it's like a cool, I'm going to think about making a decision differently in the future because I know this now. Uh, and that's kind of the thing I really enjoy. But it's like, it's future proofing me in certain situations because I know more about myself or they want to come across or, or, um, you know, how I want to manage someone or a situation, um, versus like, Oh, it's, it's a task. Yeah. What do you think about, I'm curious to get your take on this too, the roles of, you know, you have an executive coach, maybe a therapist, maybe they're one in the same. You have your team, which you can talk to uh, stuff with. You have a romantic partner, you have your family, but then something that honestly, I've really enjoyed like doing this podcast is a lot of people that I'm tight with or want to become friends with kind of pulling closer together. What do you think about kind of early stage founder network in New York? A lot of the guys that we're all friends with and gals, um, how, how do you see those roles as friends, people that you can vent with, people that you can just blow off steam with, but also do business with and start things with? Yeah, I mean, it's, so I've got probably a group of seven folks that I'm like in regular contact that they're CEOs and founders, uh, where it's sometimes it's just like, hey, I haven't had this situation before, how, like, how have you dealt with it? Or if like, dude, I'm, I'm struggling right now. I just need, I need someone who can like help pick me back up from that low uh, and just like be like, yeah, I've seen this before or yes, I've, I've felt that too. Uh, and just having that's invaluable. And so I've, I've got, you know, six or seven that I constantly reach out to. One of my friends, Lauren Burson, um, who's at Andreessen and now runs a, a fertility company, um, has been phenomenal for that. Just like checking in, like, yo, how are you doing? Or like, I'm recently, like just sending good vibes, um, you know, and back and forth. Where just, you've got that, like, a little bit more of a backstop behind you. I think I, the part that I admire about it is that it's very inconsistent and in flux and like those are the only people who actually can understand that. What I mean by that is like time of day, Mm -hmm. uh, how often, like there's people who I might not talk to for two months because we're just caught up in the everyday life of running a company. But if and when you do, it's like they're there for you as if you've been talking every day. So I think having that network of other people who operate on the same wavelength is so, it's so nice because you don't have to like explain yourself because they just get it. Yeah. What are some characteristics, open question, of people that you want to surround yourself with that is in that list of six, seven people? I mean, I think there's always a danger of trying to be like too, uh, does this person like check the box versus like just yeah. who do I like? What do you admire with? about them? Yeah. I mean, I think there's people like I try to find that are, you know, further along in their journey than I am. So like l- like a later stage founder to understand like, the different steps that they take. Um you know, it's one of those, I always knew I could be a good founder. Like I know how to do the things. This is my third company, but it's like, I want to be a great CEO. So how do I continue to level that up? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, people who are also like in different industries. Like it's, it's, I think it's important um, to like have people that are, you know, not in e-commerce or not in other places. So like you still get that same, uh, you get like a, a bit of a different perspective versus like the echo chamber. Yeah. But not, not just like the business perspective. Yeah. Like what is what just personality traits is it drive ambition pace is it just empathy kindness uh yeah i think as i've gotten older like people that are like empathy kindness are important uh especially like romantic partners like i didn't know that was a a, like core thing that i wanted until i dated someone that didn't have that it's like oh (laughs) oh i i I, I need this yeah um i think uh people who like want to grow and like have that kind of growth mindset uh, but I also think like in the friends I've surrounded myself with, like, you know, I've got two best friends. We went to elementary, middle, high school and college together. Like they know everything about me. And like, it's a level of safety. Cause like there is no front. They, they see all the faces. They know me better than I know myself. Uh, and so finding those people in your life that you can just like show up for in that kind of complete way. Um, so I think one thing to add on to everything that you just said that I would say is something I didn't necessarily think about as intentionally until the last couple of months is optimism. Uh, being able to decipher people who are just like sucking energy out of you and are just like chronic complainers versus people who can find the positivity in every negative situation, uh, I think is something that's very good for me personally. I think as someone who's very hard on myself, it's easy to get down on myself because I hold myself to high expectations and high standards. So having people around me who are just always positive has been such a, such an unlock for me. Yeah. It was one of the best comments I got years ago from a mentor is like, Chaz, you you're in a good move 99% of the time. Like the sun is kind of always shining. Uh, and it just like, and it's kind of just natural in who I am. It's just like, I show up and it's like, yeah, like I, someone gave me money to build a company and this thing in my head. Like how, how cool is that? 
uh, we're living in the greatest city in the world, like amazing. We're getting to create the lives that we want with the intention and not, you know, being burdened by everything else. It's like, how can I not, you know, think the sun is shining? Like I've, I'm grateful for the life that I've been given uh, and the life that I've built. What do you do when, I would say one of the reasons that like we all get along is I think we have similar optimism and like, I'd say most of the time I'm mm-hmm. like that, but there's definitely, um, I was talking to you about this right before of like two days ago. Uh, for some reason, just like things were working in the business, things weren't working personally. And I was just like at my place alone and it was like 10 and I had so much work to do and I was exhausted. And it was one of those moments that you have sometimes when you're alone, you're not talking to people and you're just like, like things aren't exactly where I want them to be right now. Like, what do you, what do you do when you're in those scenarios? Uh, it's actually something my exec coach and I've talked a bunch about is like, you got to just let it, we have to let it work through you. Like trying to just be like bottle it away actually isn't productive. You're just like, cool. Today sucked. Like there's no way around it. Like today sucked. And you just have to like, let it like work itself through and be like, cool. Tomorrow's a new day. I can hit it then, you know, instead of working for the next two hours, I'm going to like, have a drink, make a great dinner, watch Netflix, turn my brain off and like hit the reset start tomorrow. And if I've got to start two hours earlier to make up for the work, then so be it. Uh, but if you don't like let it like pass through you, it, it, it never leaves. Mm. What are your non-negotiable habits to get back in? So say you've like processed, you give yourself some time and space, you watch Netflix, you go to bed early and then you say, okay, I'm going to hit the next day hard. How does that next day start where you're really like locked in? Uh, so... I'm a big, I make basically the same thing for breakfast and lunch every single day. Like it's just like, it's standard. It works. I don't have to think about it, but just cooking breakfast in the morning and. Well, what are you making? <laughs> so for breakfast, I do uh air fryer, cauliflower hash brown. I do a, a medium poached egg in pesto with some avocado. I put one of our products called Crave on it, which is like a nutritional yeast. And then some uh, Szechuan chili oil from Fly by Jing. I can make it in eight minutes. And how long did it take you to get to this being the recipe that's every morning? Uh, I mean, because that's always... so specific, like the brand, the exact condiments. Do you eat that every morning, though? Basically, yeah. Really? Yeah. Even when you're in Arizona, you definitely want to be in Arizona. Really? Yeah. All uh, right, sorry. Continue. Uh, and then for lunch, I do uh, like half a pound of ground turkey with two of our seasonings, poppin' and boom, and then air fried cauliflower with uh, poppin' or boom and fuego. Um, and, and then half an avocado, but it's like, it's one of those, like, I just don't have to think about it. Like normally during lunch, I don't want to stop working. That's like when I'm hitting my peak, but I also know if I don't eat something, I'm going to crash at like four. And so it's just super protein heavy. Don't have to think about it, down it and keep moving. I'm obsessed with the concept of someone who has to make a million decisions a day. Like anywhere you can make it one less decision makes your life easier. I know like the extreme case is the, the big fortune 100 CEOs are like, I wear the same shirt every day. I'm like, all right, like you can change your outfit. That's fine. But honestly, you don't have to like sit there at your desk. Oh, it's lunchtime. What should I have today? It's like, you know what you're having. Yeah. And I know how it's going to make me feel like a big input sequel outputs kind of thing. It's like, I, I know how that makes me feel. I know it gives me the right energy. I know, uh, you know, I'm not crashing. Um, so why not? Is there anything that you've removed from your life over the last few months, whether it be something you're eating or drinking or a habit where you're like, this is just not the thing. <laughs> There's things I'm going to remove from my life. Yeah. You said you're gonna going to yeah. okay hit us. <laughs> I'm I'm excited. I'm, ex- I'm excited for this answer. Uh, it's um, I will not say one of them because my parents might watch this. But like, there are certain things I do to like uh, remove some of the stress of the day uh, that I will be quitting after we close this fundraise that we're uh, at the end of. Um, I think I know that one. Yeah, uh, and I I got into I drink like a, at least a gallon of water a day, like lemon water. Um, and that's just one of those things, again, like, I know how it makes me feel. It's good. Um, and, yeah. There's nothing else you would remove? Not right now. I like him pretty... What's one friend you would remove from your... <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's sitting next to me. Uh, Can't wait for this episode to be over. <laughs> yeah. But, no, there's stuff... There's all this stuff I do. Like, I, I love city biking to work in the morning. It's just one of those things, like, I turn into a 12-year-old kid riding an e-bike... And like with my headphones on, it just, it puts me in a good mood hundred percent of the time. Do you get as disappointed as I do when you go to the rack and there's no more e-bikes? Oh, I, I will, I will keep hunting until and I you end up, it. you end up walking the distance it probably could have taken just to walk to doesn't, work doesn't to go matter. get an e-bike. This uh, guy gets it, dude. We're on the same wavelength. I'm the same. Uh, Nothing worse. <laughs> and then I really like, um, walking home. It's like a half hour walk home. It's the perfect time for my mind to just unwind, like work Podcast? its way through. Music? Nope. Nothing. Um, just let it kind of work through. Um. The other thing I added to, I like, I grew up playing chess 
Just nerdy, and I got. Wait, back- no, that's not nerdy. I eighth grade, I won the chess tournament. I, I I let my parents throw out all the trophies in my room at home that I had as a little kid. I told my mom, <laughs> "You're not getting rid of the eighth grade chess trophy. It's still sitting in my room." Wait, yeah, do you I play mean, I, like online. So I played in tournaments and so, like I, I played enough that I had a national ranking, which okay. is like a very low national ranking. Not me. Be. Um, but uh, I was actually dating someone who got me back into playing chess online, and now like I played, I played two games every morning, like when I sit down. Uh, my computer just to, like get my brain going and firing. Mm. Uh, but I play play like a hundred games a week. Like you do. Wow. Yeah. Blocked out like eight to ten. And do no, not block. No. Wait, I love. I he's like no, dude. I beat people in five moves. It takes them two minutes. <laughs> uh, but no, I get really proud. And like chess.com, I just cracked like the top twenty percent online. Um, See, th- that's like a fascinating anecdote. That that's interesting. I also, I no sometimes I'm walking home. I'll go to Washington Square Park and play in the park, and get my ass kicked. Like I am, I've yet to win a game. I've come close once, but I just get hustled by these guys. The last time I went there, my friend and I convinced the guy to let us borrow his chessboard, and he watched the two of us play. Because I was like, I'm not not qualified to play against you, but I want to play a game of chess in the park. Yeah, it's when there's like, I know I'm good. I can see my ranking. Like I, I like I know what I'm doing, and I get owned. It's it's comedic. What what drives you, good and bad? Um. I know as a cis white male raised in a good, healthy household, like the opportunities have been given to me that most others don't have, right? Uh, there's a reason that my two co-founders don't look like me. They're both women. Uh, I don't want to squander the opportunities that have been given to me in my life and like to really make the most of it. Uh, and that's like my like, uh, like I remember when I was younger, I, I worked at Andreessen Horowitz back in the day when it was like 25 people. So a little different than it is now. But I just remember sitting there and be like, I can't, I can't waste this opportunity. Like, I have to, like, squeeze every bit of life out of it because it's, like, I, I can't believe how lucky I am to be here. Uh, I feel the same way about starting this company. It's, like, some people entrusted me with millions of dollars to go build something that was in my head. Like, that's, don't, don't squander the opportunity. Are there any other chips on your shoulder outside yeah. of that one? Even I though mean, it's a damn good one. Do I know every investor that said no to me and, like, remember it? Yeah. Uh, do I know every partner or like that said no to doing a deal or you know um doubted that we could make this happen like of course like i so i'm not the only one with that list (laughs) no i've gotten better like i one time at a certain company wrote kind of a sassy like response to a no uh and i showed it to someone like don't do that just there's no reason like that this we're playing the long game here in life and so i've now I got to the point where I'm saying, no, it's like, cool, on to the next. Like, I would rather have believers in my corner than not. Um, I always joke that sometimes fundraising, it's, it's actually like dating, where, like, you only need to be right once, right? You just need to find the one that believes and, like, fits. Uh, and so, yeah, if you get 99 no's, but you find the one that actually, like, gets it, gets it, fuck yeah. Like, that's, that matters way more. We talked about this uh, with someone else, but I want to, I'm curious if you heard this story, because this concept that you're alluding to is hilarious, because I just went through this process a few months ago. But I read something online about a founder who an investor said no, and he sent him weekly metric updates for like the next two years. And the, the guy's company actually like skyrocketed. And the investor was the one who posted on like LinkedIn about a founder who basically just trolled him by sending him the metrics every week for the next two years because he passed on his company, which I think is hilarious. And also one of the funniest stories. Yeah, one of the funniest I mean, things. Yeah, like I, I, there are people on our like updates that we send out that are VCs who have passed just so they can see. And literally one's come back and be like, I've got FOMO. Uh, it's like, did it work? Have they come back in? Uh, it was a different stage. So like they could pass them, but um, it's yeah. Yeah. Why not? Um, and each one of those knows like still drives you. No, I don't like my drive isn't to prove them wrong. It's to like prove myself that I'm right. And that this thing, like I know I'm right. I know what we're building is correct. I know you know, the time and sweat my co-founders and I put in, like, it's, we, we are right. I can see it. Uh, but also as an athlete, like, I think part of that is that you, you understand what it means to face adversity. And like, especially in the athletic journey, if everyone says right to you, usually something goes wrong along the way. Cause you need to be humbled and you need, you need to be able to push yourself a little bit further when someone tells you you're not good enough, you're not strong enough. And so I, I'm guessing that similarly to myself, you translate a lot of that like attitude from your athletic career into the way that you operate a business. Yeah. So back in high school, I was like a, on a state champion team, but I had two All-Americans ahead of me. Uh, and my coach at one point took my parents aside and he's like, Chaz is just as talented, the two of them. He's just in his own head. He's like, just run like a dumb horse. Like put blinders on and just go. 
And so I like think about that sometimes is like, look, you know, if you think you've got the talent to, to do this, just like put your blinders on and go. Cause like, you got to just like, let that come through and, and have that kind of level of focus to, to get you there. Can you clarify what races you were running? I was a miler. What, what was your, you told me at the time, what was it? I, I like, uh, Basically, 410 to 415 was my fastest. In, in college, you run the 1500, not the mile. And so that's yeah. like the, the translation of time. That seems way faster than anything I can do. It's way faster than anything I can do now. That's for sure. What, what do you think you could run now? Six? I bet I could. You could run a six. Oh, yeah. I know. I, can, I bet I could do like 540 and then I would throw up. We definitely need to all run together. <laughs> no, I don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, I'm here for it. Yeah, let's do it. I'm not doing a mile sprint. I'll go for like a three mile like Sunday afternoon jogging on the West Side Highway. Yeah. I'm up for that. Wait, coming back. Okay, sorry, getting back on track. How, was, how much pressure do you put on yourself now compared to a few years ago? Like, is it getting higher every year? Or is it, you know, before you had even started your first company that was semi-successful? Did, was that kind of the highest level of stress or pressure that you've dealt with? Uh, I don't know. I actually think it's kind of constant. Like, I've got expectations for myself of what I think I can achieve. Um, I know, I, I think here framing it a little bit differently. I know the things that, that are my superpowers that I'm the best at. And I know like, how do I like make sure I'm focusing myself around those because that's like what gets me the best outcomes. Um, and so it's not like a pressure sort of thing. It's more of just a, like kind of back to that similar like intentionality of it. Like I know where I can move the needle or what, what I'm very unique capable of doing and making sure I get to do that. Do you think there's expectations for in a sense, excellence. Have you always had those? Is that something maybe that comes with athletics over time or just multiple reps of building companies? Uh, no, I think, I mean, like I wasn't the greatest student. I was fine, but I wasn't like amazing. Um, I, think, I think part of it is, again, it's just like figuring out what you're good at and what role suits you for that. Like I think this role suits me better than anything else I've done. Um, and... That's, you know, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, I hear you. I'm going to ask a question out of the blue because I'm just curious. But if there was one class in college that you wish you would have paid closer attention to, what would it have been? Uh, writing. Like uh, English. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a fantastic salesperson. That's like the thing that I'm best at. Uh, but I wish I was a better writer. Uh, so I like, you know, partnered with Adrian on some stuff because like I can't take what's in my head and coming out of my mouth at hundred miles an hour, like, and put that into coherent on paper. I always remember, like, I was jealous. My boss, Andreessen, managing partner, was a Stanford lawyer, investment banker, but, like, he could write these eloquent emails in, like, five minutes, and that would take me, you know, an hour and a half to write that same email. Uh, and so I'm a much better writer now at this age than I was when I was younger, but it's still, you know, putting words down on paper the right way is, is I will encourage my kids to pay much more attention than I did. Can I tell you that's one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast because I can't write either. I can like, I do better verbally articulating my thoughts. So I figured, okay, let's just like use a camera and a microphone instead of typing something out. And I'm sure there's probably a lot of things we say on here that can be extracted into the way that I will now pitch a business or like post on socials, et cetera. Yeah, I think... I think writing is really interesting because it's not just your like long form soliloquies or long form investor updates or the pitch about the business, like the stuff that we worked on. That's very important. But also, I feel like, again, all of our businesses are a bit different, but 90% of like the deals that I work on at Verbatim or close, they're done via email. Mm -hmm. They're done via text. And you can be casual. You can be formal. You need to read the room. You need to get things across very simply, but also give enough context. The amount of times that, say, negotiate on price, like no one has time to hop on a call. You're just texting or emailing back and forth. That's been the biggest learning recently. It's not just this long form stuff. Uh, a friend of mine is this guy, Samuel Shaw, who runs Haystack. Uh, he started um, originally just writing and like blogging. And then he turned that into like writing on TechCrunch. And then he turned that into like a TechCrunch podcast. And then he turned that into, you know, raising a million dollar first fund. And now Haystack's like one of the better investors out there. Yeah. And so it's just, it was one of those like watching him and like the power of like, and he's always known that writing is his superpower. Uh, and just the power of like written word when you do it right can just open up so many doors. I think for me, so two things. The first one is consistency. Obviously with anything else in life, you'll get better if you just keep working at it. 
my, and I'm curious how you feel about this, but my problem with writing is that my brain moves a million miles a minute. And so when I sit down to start writing, I have like way too many thoughts that I want to get out yesterday. And then it becomes overwhelming for me. Like it, 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 this might be the craziest thing I've ever said on this podcast, but I feel like writing for me can be anxiety inducing Mm -hmm. because when I sit there and I start journaling, I'm like, I don't even know where to start because I have so many things I want to like get out that I'll just like close it and avoid it and walk away from it. Uh, so two things like one, this is me talking slow. Like this is like me trying to talk slow. Cause I, I go into overdrive doing a good job. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, two, the thing I found that it's good. I actually like, I've got a, a big journal that I have and I go like once a week, take myself out of dinner and just sit and write. And it doesn't have to be anything. It's just me like what's ever in my head and like scribbles out on paper. And that, you know, if someone looked at it, be like, this is incoherent and you know, a bunch of like random thoughts and ideas, but it's still like just getting it out of my head onto paper. A it makes me remember it more. It makes me process it better. And so I found like, yeah, sitting down and typing like a long form blog post or email doesn't do that. But sitting there actually physically writing like really, really works for me. Are uh, there any activities or things that you try to do? It could be weekly, monthly that fully turns you off from work and you can just lose yourself in like playing soccer, playing golf. Riding the e-bike to work. Like you're just focusing on the road, the music, like there's nothing else. Uh, it's, it's, it's simple, but like, I really like it. Um, also, I want to come back to one of your consistency points because that's like yeah. a big thing for me. Is like, um, I do this thing. I don't do uh, uh, New Year's resolutions. I do New Year's themes. And so, like, consistency is one. Compounding was one. Or like, compounding was like, cool. If I have three good days or like four good days, that's a good week. And I just do like X's and O's. If I've got two good weeks, that's a good month. Um, if I've got six good months, it's a good year. And you just like track that like those little things like they um, compound over time. And this year with consistency, like I do like week long sprints. Of like, great, I just want to like do something consistently for a week. Maybe I like it and turn into a, a habit. Maybe I don't, but it can be something as stupid as just like doing your nighttime like face routine or whatever it is. Uh, or, you know, all right, I'm just going to like lift seven days a week for one week. Uh, just something that like gets you into that consistent habit, which is like kind of a game changer, I think. Yeah. Are you ever tempted, this is just speaking from personal frustration at myself, of I'll do like a week of like eating clean. Something, something deep inside me is like, you need to go have a pint of ice cream from Van Leeuwen right now. And I love it. And I'm not saying I shouldn't be doing that, but I've always had trouble. I don't know if it's like a week point or two weeks where I'm just like, fuck it. I'm going to go have like some Thai food and ice cream. Yeah, why not? Like, that's because I hang out with Ben. It's a problem. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of like self guilt on that sort of stuff. It's like, cool. I'm doing, there's enough that I'm doing right that I'm really proud of that. Like when I'm doing something wrong like that, it's like, who cares? Honestly, I'll be the first to say that my behavior is too extreme most like most days. Yeah. Right. So like if I told you what I've eaten in the last four days, you would be like absolutely disgusted. What, wait, 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 sure. I just finished 75 hard uh, and I was like, OK, I need to like take a week off from this and maybe I'll do it again. But I like the first day when I got home, I ate like a full Prince Street pizza and like a carton of ice cream and then like had like Taco Bell and uh, all the things. <laughs> Which is not, it's terrible. It's like the, actually the opposite of what I would recommend. Like you need to do things in moderation. And the whole point of doing something like that is to build like a lifestyle and habits. But for me, I was like, I'm just craving bad food for a couple of days. So I need to like get it out of me. And then I'll probably like go back to where I started. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think when you are over rotating about it, it become a net negative. Cause if like, you get yes. out of it, then you're like, Oh, like Agreed. something's off. That's my pro. That is my problem. Um, yeah. Totally. Versus like, cool, it's a cheat day or it's a cheat week, like whatever. Like it's still helping your mental health and being happy and like, yeah, it makes you happy. Like who, who cares? Totally. No, I think not worrying about it has been like, like being able to the last couple of days to just kind of eat whatever I wanted and actually not think about it has been kind of, kind of nice. Um, I want to touch on another subject. I know uh, Adrian had mentioned to you, but just like the concept of the podcast being called Turning Pro and what that means. Yeah. Uh, would love to to double click into moments in your life where you felt like, you know, you looked in the mirror and you're like, okay, I just, I just leveled up. This is, I'm turning pro. Like what are, what are those things that you've done uh, that make you feel that way? Uh, I've got two. Uh, so one, I was probably like 24 at the time uh, and I was working in banking and I remember uh, going to sleep that night and be like, there's nothing about today I'm going to remember. I didn't learn anything. There was nothing new and interesting. Like there was a nothing day. It was a throwaway. And like that level of, um, complacency like just doesn't like I, I don't do well with it and shortly thereafter I read Richard Branson's How I Lost My Virginity uh I read as fast as I talk so I like read it in one sitting for like six hours it's like cool 
fuck, like I need to go after the things I want. And I've got this a thing I talk about a bunch in, internally and, and to people is like front, front foot versus back foot in life. Like, are you letting life come to you or are you going after the life that you want? And Love so um, I knew I wanted to break into VC, but like with my background, where I went to school, my job, like it was very long shot. Uh, and so I went, I took computer science classes at Stanford. I like learned how to do a bunch of modeling on cap tables. Um, I went and networked my way around cause I knew like just my resume coming over an email, like no one would ever say yes to a meeting. Um, I get down to the final two candidates at 11 different VC funds. And you know, this is back when venture was a lot smaller. This is like 2010, 2011. So like there's maybe 30 or 40 firms that like were really hiring for junior people. And yeah, I remember one, I was just like, shit, I might not get another chance. Um, and so I, uh, one of the, the heads of the bank I was at gave me the card for the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz when they're like three or four people cold email. And he's like, Hey, come in. Like, let's hang out for, you know, we talked for an hour and a half. There was no, this is like 20, they weren't hiring at all. Um, someone else had introduced me to Ronnie Conway and he's like, yeah, let's shot, let's hang out for half an hour. And then, so when I heard that they were hiring, like I reached back out and lo and behold, they took a chance on this 25 year old when the firm was like 25 people. Um, and that was like one of those, like, oh, that's like the moment that like it shifted from front foot to back foot. Um, and, you know, definitely like changed my, the trajectory of my career and the things that I thought were possible. Um, the other one is when I left uh, uh, my last company pattern, I had a ton of burnout, like to the point of like multiple physical twitches. And I was having dinner with a friend of mine who's also a CEO and a founder of a company. She said to me, he's like, Chaz, are you happy? I was like, no, like I'm, I'm like, I'm just I'm working hundred hours a week. Like I'm working double A's of China and, and US hours. Um, and she's like, cool. Venmo me right now. And so I Venmo to her. Um, and my theme for that year was like community. So like anytime someone just invites me to something that's going to like build a community. And she went to this uh, retreat uh, in upstate New York. That was like a sound bath meditation that was kind of dosed. Uh, I still wear this thing uh, from it. Um, and I we went through kind of the ceremony and I came out on the other side. I was like, cool. I need to quit pattern. And I quit like the next day. Um, it was just like, I need to like, you know, it felt like I was part of the founding team of that company. It felt like removing a bone from my body to like actually go and do it. Um, but it was definitely the right decision and like put me back in, in a much better mental headspace. And so this is like a reminder, like, don't ever get back to like that headspace that you were in before. Um, how many and, years ago was that? Uh, this was Feb, 2020. Whoa. Three years ago. Mm -hmm. You're still wearing that. I haven't taken it off. Whoa. So. It stays on 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And is it around your thumb? Oh, it's just because it's got like a long. Um, He's playing it, with it. It's just. Oh, oh <laughs> just, got it. Because I've got small wrists. So yeah. it's got a bunch of extra string. Um, but yeah, that was the other moment of like, cool. I need to like choose more of the life that I want. This isn't serving me. I'm not in a good mental health space. I need to, I need to switch. And, um, you know, that's shortly after when I started therapy and exact coaching and, and realized that needed to be a big part of my journey. Are you on. Between, I know front foot, back foot is a spectrum, probably. Um, where in that spectrum are you right now? Are you 100% front foot getting after it? Yeah. Uh, I definitely feel on the front foot in life of going after what I want. I think getting back to New York from Arizona, you know, kind of shifts you back in the mentality of, that's, you know, being proactive and like, hey guys, I'm back, like, from my little hiatus uh, in the wintertime. Um, so, like, you know, to get be back in front of trade hours to, going after the stuff at work that I want and, you know, um, whether that's closing on our fundraise or some of these kind of retail deals that we're doing. How do you ensure that you stay proactive about meeting new people, getting in new rooms, staying at the front foot, especially when, um, I mean, on paper and in real life, you've had a ton of success. You're incredibly wired in, and you're very well loved by like everyone that I know. And you're very much in those rooms and in those conversations. How do you ensure that you still are meeting new people. You're still getting after new things. Um, so sometimes people ask like, what drives you? Like, are you trying to like have more money? Is it wealth or whatever it is? And there's this talk that Ari Emanuel did years ago uh, on stage. And he was talking about like every day I call 10 people and they take my phone calls when I want to learn about something new. That could be neuroscience. It could be any, any level of like topic where he just wants to know. And he's like, the thing that I've got is like, I'm, I'm not, I'm famous in that like people will take my phone call, but they don't recognize me on the street, right? But he's like, I can get access to anyone. Uh, I saw Mark Andreessen gets to like sit down with four-star military generals when he wants to learn military policy or whatever that might be. Or, um, and the 
finding new people like that access like that learning from who they are in like different industries is like the thing that I love because a that opens up a lot of doors that you just never would have expected but b um that's how I learned like when I was starting Starday and incubating it with Equal Ventures um when I was building out the thesis I was just like calling seven people a day just like cool take my call like here's what's in my head tell me where I'm right tell me where I'm wrong I'll take in some of that I'll throw some of that away uh oh I'm gonna ignore that point that you made because I don't fucking believe you um but it's like that like really like dialing for dollars or dialing for for uh information that was like one of my favorite points it's just like cool I'm just gonna um do you guys remember the matrix when he like downloads like how to learn kung fu yeah it's like that same moment it's like oh cool I know kung fu now like I just learned everything I could about a topic and that's awesome how do you uh think about managing relationships because like obviously based on that point like relationships are a huge part of your life and sounds like a priority in your life as well what do you think are the key drivers of maintaining good relationships um it's two things like one with friendships like i'm never i never like oh someone hasn't texted me i don't want to text them like i'm always down to be the one that's texting and like pushing and probing and you know being in people's lives because like that matters to me and they're you know whether busy with kids or families or anything else like i'd rather be proactive always um and and i'm okay with that okay there's no if it sometimes that my best friend who lives in the city best friend since fourth grade uh you know sometimes it's like a 30 to 1 text like chain like me texting him about <laughs> stuff um and i'm fine with that uh so i have no qualms and two um I think there's a shift in life when you realize like everyone that you meet has, is interesting in their own way. Right. And like, can you kind of find that, uh, and that there's things that you love about them. And so I've got friends, you know, from all kind of walks of life that like, Oh, when I want more of this sort of intention or, um, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to say vibe, but I think, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah, energy. Um, like I know that there are kind of different people that I can go to. Um, and it's why like, you know, you find a dating I joke I've never had a bad first date like hey I can talk my way through it but be like everyone's got something that's you know unique to them that you get to learn and that's that's cool and interesting if you if you approach it that way um I think the last point too is just uh there's definitely people I see out there that take relationships as like very transactional right and like that's not my mo like there's, there's no there's no scoreboard there's no score count it's just you know I want to like build relationships with people in my life that it should be for the next 30 years. Right. Um, and I think because I've had friends that have literally been in my life for 30 years, like I, I had that same viewpoint of like, I just want to like be around those people and, you know, spend time with them and like build that. So I, I think the, the, you said it, so I kind of want to go into it, but the concept of dating, I'd be curious to hear how you think about like the qualities that you would deem as that from like a date, how, how would you quantify it as successful versus not as someone who needs to be intellectually stimulated that has so much drive, uh, like when you walk away from a date, what, what would you say were the things that made it a good one versus a bad? I mean, it's chemistry at the end of the day, right? Like, uh, do you actually have like repartee and, you know, but if you were to, I guess, uh, aggregate the common threads across 20 dates, let's say, uh, so you mean last week? Yeah. <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> My last week. Uh, that's not true. Um, <laughs> cutting that out of the box. Yeah. Um, it's gonna be the first short form clip that we share on the social. <laughs> Twenty minutes. Uh, yeah. Look, there's things you know that are non-negotiables, like kindness, right? Like we talked about, like that's like, oh, I, I want something that's kind, or someone that sees the world in a positive light, or you know, that wants to like build and not just be kind of, kind of complacent. Um, and actually, has a worldview. Like I joke, I wanted to date with someone in Arizona, and they were a lawyer. It all seemed great on paper. Uh, and we're talking about traveling internationally. And like, I grew up in England for a while. I've slept on factory floors in China. Like, I've traveled all over, like most people in New York, right? You, you're here and you've been all over the world. And they're like, oh, I've been to Cabo twice. It's like, so you mean like last month? Like, no, that's the only international travel I've ever done. I've, I've been to Cabo twice. It's like, ooh. I don't, I don't think I've got anything else to talk to you about. Like, that's, that says everything I need to know. And so it's more like, you know, kind of the counterpoint to what you're saying, but like things like that, we're like, okay, that's not, that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. I think the chemistry point, like you really don't need to over-engineer that. I think it's with new friends or like new people I meet as well. There's people like, like we met on LinkedIn and started podcast a week later, not being like, Hey, it's chemistry, but like, there's just, you just get along with certain people. Yeah. Um, we met over the phone and I was like, all right, Chaz is my boy. Like mm -hmm. from the next day. And we just started texting. And since we probably co-invested maybe 10 times together, 
maybe more, who've done a bunch of work together. And like those just build organically. My, my buddy has a saying um, like that 2% of people in your life will just float to the top and you really don't need to overthink it. Yeah. Cause I am definitely an overthinker of like, am I managing these relationships? Am I, do I need to spend time with Ben and Chaz? But like event, like if you have that chemistry, like you're going to be friends. Yeah. And you really don't need to think about it too much. Agreed. I, I think change that, that changing in the framing of the thought about the relationship management I've found is something that I've stressed less about as I've leveled up myself. Like when I was still kind of this, this kid working on a bunch of like fake ideas, just like trying to find my way. All I cared about was like new relationships, managing relationships, exerting so much energy into like managing them versus realizing that when you get to a point where you have real problems and real businesses that you're working on, the relationships, the ones that are meant to be there will be there. And the ones that drift a little bit, but you still have good relations will also be there. And you just have to learn to accept that like whatever happens is supposed to happen. Yeah. The other thing I learned a while back and it's, it's more business related, but the problems you've had, you think are unique. Everyone else has fucking had them. Like, yeah. and it's just a matter of like, go find some people that are, you know, have dealt with the same thing and, and get their advice. And again, it's not, don't take all advice as like hard and fast. Like take the pieces that work for you and kind of move forward. But, um, we're not always as unique as we think we are sometimes. What's the best, the worst piece of advice you've ever been given that you like just strongly disagree with? Uh, I don't want to, I'm going to throw my dad under the bus here, but <laughs> he can, he can handle it. Um, so when I, this, I'll, I'll ask a follow up question to okay. let you cover it, cover that one. Uh, he, when we were, when I was um, interviewing for VC funds, uh, and I got the 11th no, I was like, shit, like this might be my last chance. So like, Chad was like, maybe it's just not for you. Like, it's okay. Like you don't have to, don't worry about it. Like you like, just, it's okay if that's not your path. I got angry. It's like, no, I want you to be like encouraging and pushing me forward. But his, you know, my parents are wonderful and loving, but his, his like, it's okay to just accept it. It's like, no, it's not okay. I'm not okay with that. Um, was the worst piece of advice I've gotten. And what was the best piece of advice your dad has ever given you? Uh, I don't have a, a tattoo, but if I was going to get a tattoo, this would be it. Uh, he's got this phrase he told me years ago that there's no way around it, but through it. And sometimes like, I remember, when he's younger and have to pull all nighters, it's just like cool. No, we're not about through it. Like just crank on work and like get it done. Uh, when I've gone through really hard times to start it, it's like there's one route. It's through. Um, and like sometimes when you just have that like singular like thinking, it's just uh, your focal point gets a whole lot smaller. Has your vision for Star Day since? I mean, I think you floated an early idea of it one of the first times we talked. But over time, I feel like every time I see you, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And other people I've talked to say a similar thing of like the vision keeps expanding and it's fucking amazing to see him get after it from your lens. Is it getting bigger or is this like that was always the North Star? Can you just quickly explain what Starday is for those listening? <laughs> that would be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Starday, we're building the next Nestle. We're building the next great F&B conglomerate. But if you look in the hood, you're like, but you've got a bunch of data scientists writing code. It's like, well, yes, both these things are true. Uh, we basically use data science to predict product market fit and like where these different trends are going or sorry, where these consumer needs are going and then how they fit into certain trends or uh, categories or attributes. Uh, and then we go build the brand, right? So similar like, you know, um, Stitch Fix or Shein, they know people like blue polos and they go build it because most of the brands, their own house brands. We think about it in a similar light. Um, or like Netflix, Netflix knows everything about the content you watch and then they go build the shows that they know are going to perform. Um, and then we, you know, we built four brands that are live. Uh, and then we also started to partner with retailers. We're like, hey, we can show you in our data science models. Like, you want to capture more customer wallet share. Uh, this is where you would do it. Or like, this is the psychographic of your, uh, your, your shopper. Like, they work out for stress management and strength training. They don't work out to lose weight. So like, diet culture-based products aren't going to be a fit. And so it's connecting both that consumer need uh, with that consumer where if we, we say like the product is the process, the output is the brand. Like it's like Ford with the Model T. The innovation was the assembly line. That put was the Model T that was better, faster, more reliable. And so like our data science models are the, the assembly line. The output is just the brand. What are some live examples of like going through that process? Yeah, so our third brand, I'll talk on two. Our third brand is called Kuzumi. It's um, low FODMAP rice blends. So have you heard of low FODMAP before? For the audience. I'm actually surprised. So I um, it's uh, there's more intent on it online than there is for collagen and probiotics. It's like, a, a, um, but it's the number one prescribed diet by nutritionists to fight IBS and bloating, particularly within women. So it's like an anti-inflammatory diet. 
but it's really boring and hard to do because it's um, no garlic, no onions, no, no garlic, no onions, no nightshades. And that's like the simple version. There's actually a lot more to it, but it also means there's, it's hard to get flavor in your diet, right? And so we made this rice blend that's, you know, an everyday staple that has a center flavor to it that's low FODMAP compliant. But if you see on the packaging, it says gut health at the top, low FODMAP secondary, because we know like where that is in the adoption curve, that it's not ready to be like the prime time, most valuable attribute. It needs to be like a secondary attribute because it's not like ready yet. Uh, and so if you just started with like the form factor rice, like, you never would have like figured out, oh, wait, you can actually solve for a gut health thing. Um, so that's one. Uh, other brand is called Habea. Um, it's uh, a crunchy topper. So it's like a cross between like a bacon bits and a French's onion, but all plant-based. We made it, we put it in the hands of consumers. We do a bunch of like blind and consumer testing. Um, and uh, the feedback was okay. So we went back to the demo and kind of we went attribute stacking. Like, oh, consumers want like more protein in their diet that's not soy. And so we found this chickpea extrusion that could be a part of it that's now 15 grams of protein per serving. You can put it in a salad, you can put it on a pasta, you can get it straight up as a snack. Easy to get like 30 grams of like good protein on anything that you're you know eating. And now it's one of our highest growing NPS products to date. And so it's like one of those like iterative cycles of what you build. Um, a lot of the way we think about it kind of flies in the face of how most F&B brands are built, which is this like founder narrative fallacy. Um, and for the record, anyone who's founding a company, you've got my respect. This is not meant to be a, a dig on it. But a lot of F&B brands are, are founded with this idea of like, I had allergies as a kid, so I'm like an allergen-free cookie brand. And that's like the qualitative insight that's gonna lead you to the promised land. Um, I don't think I've got any, God, don't think I've got any God-given insight. I don't think my taste buds represent mass America. I don't even like our first product, Gooey, because I don't eat sweets. Um, but my opinion doesn't matter. I'm the last person to trial of our products because I believe in data science. I believe consumers will tell you what they want if you know how to listen. That creates more repeatable, predictable sort of outcomes. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I'm applying a similar methodology, but building storefronts for e-commerce brands around the concept of having them be data-driven, not design-driven. So it's like, yeah, it's great if it looks good, but what matters is you're actually converting. Yeah, there's a funny story. Uh, one of our investors is Fiji, the CEO of Instacart. Uh, and we're talking one time, and she formerly ran advertising at Facebook. She's like, Chaz, when I came to Instacart, I thought everyone should be doing what you're doing. It's just taking all this stuff we know from consumer software and applying it to F&B because it's so trend, data, attribute heavy. And she's like, no one's doing it. So like, yeah, I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the world. It's just that kind of adjacent next sort of thinking. Um, or if you want like a really bad pun, I was at Andreessen when we wrote the software eats the world memo. This is software eats F&B. It's terrible, but I can't help it. It's um, a good narrative. Um, Lead into it. Take it. Run with it. The other fun thing is, um, uh, this is going to make me sound really old. Uh, I've got some gray in my beard, but not this much gray, which is if you think about what happened in music pre-Napster. So if you're an artist, you have to go to an A&R man to get on the radio, and so demand was pushed onto us. Now we get on Spotify and search like indie electro pop, and so demand is pulled forward. That same sort of element was at play in F&B for the longest time, where like consumers would just accept it was on the shelves of, you know, that big food was shoveling down our throats. And now with COVID, after COVID, you know, the rise of digital grocery, recipe books turning to blogs, a lot of that demand uh, and you know, consumer need states were coming online, which meant you could start to understand like where demand was pent up and then you go build it. I think that's those conversations with, we all have a lot of friends that are running high growth food and beverage brands. And I think those are always the hardest conversations of, even if you execute to perfection, sometimes just like the market is literally too small or just the trend is going in the other direction. And that's something that what you're building, again, from the first time we talked, I was investing in food and bed full time. And I was like, this explains every conversation we have of even if it's perfect and you don't set a foot wrong from an execution lens. Sometimes just like the market for kombucha is just moving in a different direction. Demand drives everything. How do you think about like trying to build multiple brands at once versus one brand? And did you see that as like a distractor or you have enough um, parallels in the way you do the operation that you can just yeah. make it like a rinse and repeat model? So when, again, right previously it was at Pattern Brands where we built multiple brands, we had 40 SKUs in you know, the first 18 months or something like that. And so I remember when we were raising my original seed round, there were some investors like, you can't build more than one brand. It's like, A, I've done it before, but B, watch me. Um, it's, it's a shared services model, right? Where, you know, you can kind of flex depending on the needs because they're not always the same needs at the same time. Uh, you know, my VP of sales, whether she's selling one brand or four brands, it's one brand with 12 SKUs or four brands with three SKUs, like it doesn't really matter. Um, and so it just flexes kind of that way to scale up. If Stardays fails, why? <laughs> just uh, really going to all that, those deep, dark things I think about at night. Um, um, it's because of retail line reviews. So basically when you sell in a retailer, they open up a category once a year, you pitch in and then it closes. Um, and then they were set on shelf the next 12 months. Uh, and so it's just a very like 
you can only get it in certain times. That's why we're kind of shifting to do more platform deals with retailers where we, you know, basically co-build together and, and launch you know, much, much bigger. Um, but it's just those kind of like cycle times are like, great. You, it's a J curve of like burning in revenue. So when you build a platform, like you have to invest a lot to build the platform. And then at what point is like the output, AKA your brand start like, you know, pulling money back in uh, and just like the timing and cadence. Similarly, like, you know, sometimes when we're pitching in at line review, um, you know, just a, a category buyer might just not get our model. They're used, it's just different than they we're used to see, right? They're used to, cool, you're selling in 60 doors of Gelson's. Now you're stepping into HEB. Um, we're like, no data science. We've, we see all the consumer demand. It's just like, wait, like what? Uh, and so what we found is like, as we get hired up and working with retailers at kind of the exact level, they're like, oh, we get it now. Like it's a portfolio play. You should want all of our brands because like we're giving you category lift. We're reducing your assortment risk, that sort of thing. What do not what do what do most food and beverage founders not understand about retail? Uh, it's the cadence for like line reviews that like you've got to if you don't pitch in now, you might not get another opportunity for fifteen months, right? Uh, and so you can't change those cadences of when they set. Uh, and I think a lot of times founders are like, oh, I want retailers to come to me. Like I want I want to like feel like they want me. It's like no, dude, you're you're like you you. Shipping pallets is much more profitable than shipping individual units. They get peppered by tons of new brands. Like you've got to, you've got to sell yourself. Uh, and so they just want this, like, Oh, they're going to come to me. It's like, no, no, they won't. What about like 10 years from now? Do you think that you're at the forefront of the new norm for what F and B should be or where, where it will be? Yeah. I think there's this crazy idea of right now building brands with data is not consensus. And that to me, like that's wild. But do you know why? Is it just a lot? Is it fragmentation in the market? Is it like lack of information? It's just not the way it's been done. Like it just, you know, like building with data and you're like using data science, like that's just not, it's not how big food operates. It's not how, you know, it's mostly like people starting an F&B brand in their garage, right? That kind of founder narrative story um, where it's like lived experiences versus data. And so it's just, it's just a kind of diametrically, diametrically opposed. I think in five years or 10 years time, everyone be like, yeah, why would you not build this with data? It just seems obvious. And it's just, you know, where we are at that kind of point in the cycle. And Chaz big, no, no, you do this. This is why we're bigger than Nestle now. Um, do you think like big fast food chains use data, but maybe in the wrong ways or not even? No? Nope. Um, I'd be curious to know if the data was used in a way to engineer like bad habits being built around like why do people eat like mcdonald's chicken sure, nuggets like flavor i mean flavor yeah i guess it's more in the flavoring piece of the the I don't ingredients so, me neither. <laughs> there's this interesting thing where uh big food for the last like 20 years has had consultants say like go vertically integrate your supply chain right go put 100 dollars in your capex to get 10 percent better throughput of your uh manufacturing go do multi-year derivative deals on those core ingredients to lock in prices uh and what it means is that um uh, this innovation serves the supply chain, not the consumer, right? Like Campbell's launched soup sauces. Like who's asking for that? Or like one of my favorite examples is like Jimmy Dean sausages launching blueberry flavoring. It's like gross. Um, <laughs> Jimmy but if, Dean sauce. Like, yeah. Why? <laughs> um, but you know, if the consumers now want like alt meat and gluten free and you spend a hundred million dollars in your capex to lock in all this like manufacturing and ingredients, like what are you going to do? You kick that can on the road to the next person. Um, the other part of the, the, the data piece is like, um, you guys have seen the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Of course. Um, it's like the introduction of sabermetrics into baseball. Like when Jonah Hill walks in the room with a bunch of scouts, like, oh, that's a five-tool player. I know a great swing when I see it. And he's like, on base percentages, score runs. Build like a team around like, like on base percentages. And that's like how you win. And it's like, again, the same thing what we talked about. Like for years, it's just been done with intuition. It's like, again, I don't think I know anything. Like my taste buds don't matter. Um, and so it's it's like you should be using data of what consumers want. Like that represents uh, the population that you're you're trying to go serve. Do you have like certain uh, categories that you personally are just more bullish on in terms of where you want your team allocating their time from an R and D perspective? Nope. How do you like? What is the process you use to even determine like the the market you're going after before you get to the product level? Because uh, like I, you mentioned, one of them was like gut health specifically. Yeah. Like how did you land on that? So. Our data models are very different than, than like a, a Spins or Nielsen or IRI that just says like, hey, nut butter, shellies, and spreads. This is how it's sold the last two years. Cool. Just because something's selling in 60 doors of Gelson doesn't mean it's going to work nationwide at Target, number one. So our models actually start with this idea of consumer need. And that can be gut health. That could be anti-inflammation. It could be tapping and allergen-free. Um, we then build what we call an ontology around it, which is like a kind of hierarchical data model 
We use a bunch of third-party APIs. Um, third-party APIs and web scraping. We've got some proprietary data partnerships. Run NLP on top of TikTok and Instagram because again, consumers talk about their consumer needs, not like nut butter jellies and spreads. It's in our own words. Mm. We run a bunch of regression models to say like, great, where is this keyword co-occurrence? Where are we learning both behavior, attribute, you know, things that are associated with it? Uh, we then like run a bunch of LLMs like AI, like um, about like, great, how is this co co correlated consumer intent? Where is this going to go over time? Uh, kind of scoring and ranking. Um, and let that drive. And the output of that is a PRD, just like you'd have in software. We hand that off to Lena, my co-founder, who's a three-star Michelin chef. She's a food scientist. She launched the first gluten-free flour brand called Cut for Cut. We go spit up a thousand samples, and we use a server called Highlight to go put that in the hands of consumers that are representative of, of where we think we want to sell this. We get NPS blinded NPS scoring to like taste and texture because that's a taste great and a repeat purchase. And then we, um, one of our investors is Ryan Callback, who founded Circle Up. Um, and we talk about this a bunch where there's this idea of like, there's attributes that you need to have, like non-GMO and gluten-free, and then ones that give you the right to win. So think, um, we call them MBAs, the most valuable attributes. So think um, uh, Halo Top, the 250 calories per pint. Mm. Had they been like the low sodium ice cream brand, probably wouldn't have worked. Uh, and so we run a bunch of testing to understand like, great, what's the MBA? Or like, if you call something dairy-free versus vegan, how does it change pent-up consumer demand, even though it's the same thing? Um, because really, at the end of the day, the packaging on shelf, it's just an ad unit. It's an ad unit with the five main variables of diet, health, ingredient, cuisine, and the brand. And so if you start to distill that down, you can optimize that ad unit on the shelf to like figure out what's going to work and what's not with that core set of consumers. So fascinating, the thought of him just like walking into the office one day and his head of data signs like, all right, we're building a protein bar that's going to do this, this, and this, and here's why. My, my, it should, it, that's, so It's so interesting. Yeah, that's what it should always come from. Like It shouldn't be from my head. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because then it's personal preference and yeah, in your little it's the, It's the concept yeah. I think we've talked about before of like knowledge versus belief of like thinking you should do something versus knowing you should do something. 100%. I'm curious for direct consumers specifically, I know you guys don't like heavily invest uh, digitally that much, but there's also a bunch of brands that I talk to and obviously that you talk to that are fucking crushing it digitally. So walk me through yeah. your... So I think you... Build your brand online, you build your business in retail. Shipping pallets is more profitable than shipping individual units, especially for low AOV price points, right? There's this idea of the price to density ratio, right? If it's a high price and really low density, meaning like uh, beauty, great online. Uh, if you're selling sparkling water online, uh, that's really heavy at a low price point, not a great business because shipping is like, <laughs> you can't get around shipping costs. Um, and so for us, DDC is testing, where we're testing that ad unit, right? Uh, and running conversion funnels against it to understand something about the audience, the behavior, or the attribute, and then flowing them through to the site. Uh, so that you know, when we're running uh, shelf talkers or out of home for a retailer, we know the attributes are going to work with that core audience and, and optimizing around that. Uh, and so it's literally just a conversion funnel, you know, kind of testing for us. And it really depends on the product. Like, yeah, so. it, it depends on the price point, right? Like if yeah. you've got uh, an AOV above like 50 bucks. Like, yeah, that works. Like well, I guess right. to, to ask about like your roadmap with your products, do you have a focus on lower AOV or like you think there might be a world where you are doing, it's, or it's just cause you're doing F and B and there's not many, right. there's not many food products that you're spending a hundred dollars on a, exactly. it's, yeah. it makes know, sense. Um, it's very different than pattern, which is like higher, you know, I don't know what their AOV is like, call it $150, right? Where, um, you know, it's that, that model works a whole lot better, but for a low price point, like you've got to be in retail distribution's a game. Yeah, uh, I think we're we're over the hour mark here. Um, I don't know if there's any any final thoughts you might have or questions. Any zany off the wall ones that you uh, have saved up? Uh, here, you know what? I'm gonna I'll pull up I'm gonna pull up the list. See if there's something that we haven't touched on that I want to ask. Or we can talk about the. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we can cut out this middle part. No, I think I I think I touched on most of them. I guess one last one because we've talked about this a little bit. But like, what do you think are the three most common traits in high performers? Consistency, um, like unwavering self-belief. Um, and a like clear vision of like how you think the world's gonna unfold. What's your answer to that? I don't think I've asked you, Adrian. I'm not sure I have a full baked answer. Consistency is definitely one of them. We yeah. were walking around getting coffee earlier. I said, shout out Doris Dev. Um, the f like consistency, not just in the way you show up as a person, but doing good work year after year after year, the reputation, especially also running an agency, um, it is so hard to do showing up with excellence every single day. So anyone that has that consistency, I admire immensely. 
Um, and obviously what you guys are doing. Huge fan. Appreciate that. My, I mean, my number one for sure is inadequacy. inadequacy. High performers are the ones that always feel like they're not enough. And so they're always trying to, to chase like the challenge they have with themselves to, to outperform that next, next level. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's me objectively giving my perspective on what I think I see as a commonality of high performers. Yeah, I agree. I think that the thing that coaching has changed for me is like, there's like two things you're incredible at. Like, you, I'm like great storyteller and at pitching, like that is the like and selling, like and that's the name of the game. Um, do that, and so it's like not if it not a feeling of inadequacy. It's like no, no, that's the thing you're best at. Go do that um, because that's where your superpower is, or like you're incredibly resilient. Um, like know that, lean into it, and like be able to kind of balance that. And so I think it, there's like, yeah, we all have chips in our shoulders and that drives you, but it's also then remembering of like, oh, this is the thing that like, you know, played hockey like here's if like if you've got a great slap shot like great on a power play like just set me up like this is this is my like zone of genius this is the thing i'm best at like just set me up and let me like do my thing um and so i think that's like a little bit of the pivot on the inaccuracy it's like no no yeah you've got the chip but like get you to the thing that you're best at and like do that make your a's a pluses and find someone else to do your c's for you it's one of my favorite quotes that's a good one i love it awesome man uh can you just look at the camera let everyone know where they can find you on social or your company whatever whatever you want uh yeah at startafoods.com you can find our four brands uh go buy gooey and target uh and we come to a bunch of other retailers soon um yeah i'm just we're at startafoods and you can find me from there love it follow Chaz on instagram c flexman <laughs> give him a shout out seriously man thank you for coming on this, this is pleasure. awesome really appreciate it cool stuff <laughs>